If you're familiar with the Bible at all, then you probably are familiar with the name Job. Uh, it's a man whose name has become synonymous with hardship and loss and suffering. In fact, after losing his children all at once in a great storm that collapsed a house on top of them, and after losing all of his wealth and all of his belongings and all of his servants to bands of raiding enemies, and after losing all of his livestock to natural disasters, and after losing his health to disease, after experiencing these unimaginable hardships and loss and suffering, Job's response was simply this, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 121. In other words, no matter what is happening in my life, good, bad, or indifferent, I know that God is still in control. Which, of course, raises the question, how could a loving God who's sovereign, who is in control, how could he allow such hardship and loss and suffering to exist? Right? It seems like a fair question, and yet King Solomon, arguably the wisest man who has ever lived, was clear when he wrote these words, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 16.4 Well then, does that mean that God created evil? No, it doesn't. Because first of all, evil isn't something that is created. Evil is actually nothing more than the absence of what is good. The Apostle John said, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, God created everything that has been created. In fact, God is the only person, by the way, who's ever created anything. You understand that, right? Human beings cannot create. We can only fashion things out of other things that already exist. Right? So, for instance, we make food and build buildings and compose music and art and literature and on and on and on. But all we're actually doing is fashioning those things out of other things that already exist. Things that God created. Right? We, we make food out of ingredients that already exist or materials from materials that exist. We build buildings out of raw materials that already exist. We compose music and art and literature out of notes and landscapes and languages that already exist. The fact is, human beings have never created anything and never will. All we can ever do is fashion things out of other things that God has already created. And of course, we know from Genesis chapter 1 that everything God created was good which means evil is nothing more than the absence of what is good. Evil is the rejection of what is good. Of course, since God is the sum total of everything that is good, ultimately evil is the rejection of God. And yet even though people reject God, he's still very much in control to the point that he even uses the lives of those who have rejected him to fulfill the good plan that he created for those who have accepted him. So, so even though the majority of people, according to Scripture, will reject God and his plan, he remains in control to ensure that the good plan he created for you is fulfilled in spite of the evil that is so pervasive in this world. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul wrote, There is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And to the Colossians, he wrote a hymn 
a song about Jesus Christ that says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. These are categorical statements by Paul, absolute statements about the absolute sovereignty of God over what? Over all things. And so if all things were created by him and through him, and if he's before all things, and if in him everything, literally everything is being held together, then truly Jesus Christ is all that we need. Right? He's our answer to every question. He's our solution to every problem, our fulfillment of every promise. He is our supply for every lack, our resolution to every impasse, our confidence for every uncertainty, our courage in the face of every fear. He's our assurance in the shadow of every doubt. He is our peace in the middle of every storm. And he is the hope in the midst of every dire circumstance that we will ever face in this life. Because Jesus Christ alone is in control. And of course, if you're a Christian, then, well, you probably know, know all of that already. And when asked, I think most of us would say at least that we believe all of that. And yet when you look at the way that most of us actually live our lives, to be honest, I'm not sure our daily lives, how we make decisions, how we react to circumstances, how we prepare for the future, even the immediate future. I'm just not sure the way we actually live always reflects the belief that God is actually in control, in control of all of it, the good and the bad and everything in between. Because honestly, I mean, think about it. If you experienced everything that Job <laughs> experienced, I mean, for that matter, uh, if you experienced half of what Job experienced, just being honest with yourself, would your response be, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, what a remarkable response given everything you'd been through, right? And I'm, I'm just not sure most of us can honestly say we share that depth of conviction that God is actually in control of all things in our lives, even and especially when it all seems to be going in the wrong direction. And I say that simply because most of us come unglued under far less pressure and disappointment. And then we react in all sorts of ways that are unfaithful and contrary to God's word and his will for our lives when life isn't going the way we want it to. So the question is, what was it about Job, right? What was it about him that enabled him to not only accept the reality of his circumstances, but more so to bless God in the midst of them? Well, it's because he believed more than anything else that despite all of the calamity in his life, Job was convinced that God was absolutely in control and would bring about his will ultimately in Job's life. And in the end, he stood on that in his life. In fact, I'll prove it to you. Okay, every time the word Lord is written in the Old Testament, in your Bible, it's written in one of three ways. Either all lowercase, all the letters are lowercase, L-O-R-D, or lowercase with the L capitalized, 
or with all the letters capitalized, L-O-R-D. Sometimes they're small caps, but all capitalized. And if you pay attention to that in your Bible, you'll notice that it's always written in one of those three ways, depending on who's saying the word and what type of Lord they're referring to. So you'll have all three examples in your Bible. And so when it's written in all lowercase, Adon, in the ancient Hebrew, that means to rule or ruler, like the Lord of the castle or the Lord of the manor. It refers to a ruler. When it's written in lowercase with the L capitalized, that's Adonai or Adonai in the Hebrew, which means my ruler or my Lord. It's a more personal way to refer to a ruler or to God. But look, when it's written in all capital letters, Yehovah or Yahweh in the Hebrew, that is the sacred name of God. The name God used to reveal himself to Moses from the burning bush. For the Jews, this was the unspeakable, ineffable, never to be uttered out loud, holy name of God. And so they spelled it without vowels, just four consonants, Y-H-W-H. This is the sovereign and divine name of God that was meant to express his fullness as sovereign God. Lord and creator over all things. Now notice how Lord is spelled in Job's response to the calamity in his life. The Lord, Yahweh, gave and the Lord, Yahweh, has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, of Yahweh. All three times he uses the word Lord written in all capital letters in our Bibles. Why? Because Job knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that no matter what had happened in his life and no matter what would ever happen in his future, he knew that he knew that God was sovereign in control of all things, that Yahweh was overseeing all things at all times in every single circumstance of his life. And the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because in our story today, as we continue working our way through 1 Samuel, there's a potent example of someone's life who was going through a profound and profoundly difficult change as David, a man like Job, in many ways in this story, comes to the realization that every single part of his life is being shaken to the point that he understands his life will never be the same again. And yet as he works through the sobering reality of what was happening to him and what his future would look like, having to leave behind everything and everyone who was dear to him and live like a fugitive, even though he'd done nothing wrong, David and his best friend Jonathan in just three short paragraphs of conversation that we'll look at today, they refer to the Lord, Yahweh, Lord in all caps, 11 times. That isn't normal. In, even in the scriptures, because they recognized as bad as the situation appeared to be, they recognized who exactly it was that was actually in control. And it informed their decisions and shaped their response, which ultimately sets the course for David becoming king, albeit in a most unorthodox and unpredictable way, which is the whole point. Because look, you know, we all have plans and expectations for this life, right? We do. And if you're serving God, you're probably aware of the gifts and talents that God gave you and even the desires that he's given you to use them. 
But then something or someone comes along and seemingly obliterates all your plans and expectations and desires for how you thought your life was going to play out. And instead of saying the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, okay, God, that didn't go as I'd hoped it would or planned that it would, but I know that you're in control. So I'm going to bless your name and continue to faithfully and obediently serve you as you bring about that plan in my life in some other way. But most of us don't do that. Instead, we just give up. We walk away. We're done with that person. We're done with that relationship. We're, we're done with that ministry. We're done with that church. We're done dreaming about God's plan and those desires for our lives because apparently God isn't big enough to accomplish his will for your life in any other way than the way you imagined it. Apparently God isn't actually in control when things seem like they're out of control. We may not say it that way, but that's exactly how we so often respond to God and his plan for our lives when it doesn't go the way we thought it would. Even though he's as much in control in calamity as he is in calm. He's just as much in control in your distress as he is in your success. He's just as much in control when you have no idea what's going to happen next as when everything is falling into place just as you planned it. And I'm just telling you, the quicker you can accept that, the quicker your perspective will change toward all of the things you go through, the good and the bad. Because listen, if God is in control, then you don't have to be. And I'm just telling you, There's nothing in this world more freeing than letting go of all the things you try so desperately in this life to control that you were never meant to control. Which is what David and Jonathan are teaching us in this story today, that if you will simply live like everything depends on God, because it does, you will be able to respond to people and circumstances that you did not see coming in ways that continue to move you closer and closer and closer to accomplishing God's plans throughout your life, even though the path you end up taking looks very different than the one you envisioned. So let's jump into the story then, right where we left off last time, at 1 Samuel chapter 20, and let's see what we can learn from this uh, Truly insightful conversation between David and Jonathan. We'll begin with the first 11 verses. 1 Samuel 20, 1 through 11. Then David fled Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I've found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then know that harm is determined by him. 
Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? Jonathan said, Far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? And then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. If you were here last week, uh, you'll remember that Saul, the king, had made it his mission in life to kill his one-time protege, David, out of jealousy because of David's popularity and success as a military leader. And so to that end, Saul chases David out of the royal residence while attempting to murder him with a spear multiple times. Uh, and then out of David's home and away from his wife as he sends men to David's house to kill him. And then on to Naoth. It was an encampment or community for the prophets who served the people of Israel under the leadership of Samuel. And as soon as Saul learns that Samuel is sheltering David at Naoth, he sends three separate envoys to kill him. Except that each group of Saul's men arrives at Naoth, and as they get there, they're overcome one after another after another. They're overcome by the Spirit of God to the point that all they can do is join the company of prophets in praise and worship to God, which prompts Saul to go to Naoth to try and kill David himself. And yet, as soon as he gets there, in fact, before he gets to Naoth, Saul too is overcome by the Spirit of God and ends up in a prophetic trance on the floor, naked, unable to to control his own faculties for at least a day, if not more, which buys David enough time to travel back to Gibeah in order to consult with his best friend, Jonathan, who also happens to be Saul's own son, in the hopes that Jonathan might have some insight as to why Saul, his father, is trying to kill him. And so David asks Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And, and Jonathan at first doesn't believe it. Initially, he refuses to believe that his father even wants David dead at this point. Far from it, he says, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? David, it is not, it is not so. In other words, my dad tells me everything. He hasn't said a word about this, about killing you. Furthermore, uh, you might remember back in the last chapter, verse 6, Saul swears an oath to Jonathan that David would not be put to death. So Jonathan at this point isn't buying David's story. And for David's part, uh, honestly, this conversation makes you wonder, why did he return to Gibeah in the first place since Saul has been trying to kill him or trying to have him killed about a dozen times already? Well, it's because, aside from, of course, simply wanting to go home as any of us would, the last thing David saw Saul doing was prophetically praising and worshiping God with the prophets at the end of the last chapter, which, of course, raises the question for David, maybe Saul has changed for good. So at this point, there are probably more questions than answers for David and for Jonathan, and yet David wants Jonathan to know that his intentions are pure. He simply wants to get to the truth, so much so that David says, look, if I'm, if I'm guilty of something, Jonathan, if there's something I'm unaware of, if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? In other words, let's dispense with all the pretense, okay? If I'm guilty of something, how about we just save everyone the time and trouble and just go ahead and kill me now? 
And of course, Jonathan says, there's no way that's happening, pal. For as, as David already pointed out, their friendship was forged by a covenant before the Lord. David's death was not their decision to make. It was not Saul's decision to make either, or for Saul's men to make, or anyone else's decision to make for that matter, besides Yahweh, who alone is sovereign over David's life. And so, so David devises a plan. As the next day was the, the new moon, the day of the new appearance of the crescent moon in the western sky at sunset, uh, marking the beginning of the month in the lunar calendar, which was one of the principal festivals throughout the Old Testament that called for special sacrifices. And so the head of each clan, or in this case, the king, would preside over his household's celebration of the festival. So David says, look, I'll hide out during the festival, and if your father misses me, we'll know that he still likes me. But if he's angry, we'll know that he means to do me harm. And, and uh, look, to be sure, this is a risky plan. Because if David is caught hiding in Gibeah, instead of being away at Bethlehem as they planned to tell Saul and Jonathan's in on it, he and Jonathan both could be in big trouble for their treachery toward the king. And yet uh, they're both content to carry out the plan anyway, not because they don't recognize the gravity of the risk involved, but because they trust one another based on their covenant between them and the Lord. David and Jonathan understood. And look, this will become even clearer as we go in the story today. They understood that no matter how great the obstacles are that you may have to face from day to day throughout your life, even life-threatening challenges, no matter what it is, your daily survival ultimately depends on God. Okay, no matter what, or in David's case, no matter who you're up against, even the king himself, your days on this earth are numbered by God alone. In fact, David later wrote, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139.16. You understand, God recorded Every single day of your life on this earth before you were born. Which means no matter what you're facing today. Listen, you aren't leaving this planet until God says so. David knew it. And despite everything that Job went through in his life with death seemingly at his doorstep, Job knew it too. He wrote, referring to God, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Job 12.10. The author of Hebrews knew it as well. He said it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed. Appointed by who? By God. David's son, Solomon, he knew it. He said for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul knew it, referring to God. He said, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, Acts 17, 25. Listen, the great prophet Daniel, he knew it as he addressed King Belshazzar. He said, you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Daniel 5, 23. And look, Queen Esther, she knew 
knew it as she faced the possibility of death for approaching the king, which was punishable by death when you approached the king without invitation. But she did it anyway in order to save God's people. And so she said to them, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. In other words, cry out to God for me and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Esther 4.16. You see, at the end of the day, no matter what anyone else ever says or does to you, no matter how serious the threat, no matter how grim the report, no matter how hopeless the outlook, no matter how terrifying the circumstances or how great the risk, until God calls you home, you are not leaving here. Because God alone is in control, which means everything, including your very life, from one day to the next, depends upon Him. And look, these men and women in the Bible not only understood that, but they lived like it. That's the point. They took spectacular risks knowing that God controlled every outcome. I've said this before. You can have great risk without great success. That's true. But you cannot have great success without great risk. You can't. There's no way around it. God's plan for your life, first of all, is bigger than your plan for your life. You know that, right? That's a fact. There's nothing you're ever going to dream up on your own that can hold a candle to what God has planned for you. But that also means, secondly, that you're going to have to be willing to take risks. Sometimes great risks in order to see that plan through. And of course, that's the part that trips most of us up because our culture teaches us to be risk averse. Right To avoid risk, to play it safe, to protect and preserve what we have, to, to plan out as much as possible so as to avoid danger and risk. Like somehow those are bad things. No, the truth is regularly taking risks and facing challenges that endanger your security, whether that's physical, financial, situational, or otherwise, is exactly how God wants you to live your life. Show me one person in the Bible who ever did anything great for God who didn't risk everything. Why does he want us to risk everything? I'll tell you why. Because living that way necessitates a daily dependence on him. It requires us to live like everything depends on him. Because it does. It means being willing to take risks at every turn. Being willing to be told you're being irresponsible with your time and your money and your family and your future. I've heard it all. It means being willing to take a giant leap into the great unknown. All because you're following Jesus Christ and his plan rather than this world and your own plan. So here's the question. Listen, we really need to answer today. Are you living your life right now? Think about it. Are you living your life right now in such a way that if you didn't have faith in Jesus Christ and where he's leading you for each new day, then you absolutely wouldn't make it through one more day? Or is everything so planned out in your life 
so free of risk, so thought out ahead of time that although you believe in Jesus Christ, if you stopped believing in him today, not much would actually change in your life tomorrow. Because look, the truth is, if you're not ready to risk everything for Christ, then you're not ready for the future he has planned for you. Charles Spurgeon once said, They who navigate little streams and shallow creeks know but little of the God of tempests. But they who do business in great waters, these see as wonders in the deep. Let's keep reading. Verses 12 through 17. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I've sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he's well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So Jonathan assures David that either way, whether Saul is amicable or hostile toward David, Jonathan will let David know immediately so he can plan his next move. And then Jonathan says something that seems strange, uh, given the fact that it's David's life hanging in the balance here. Jonathan says, and by the way, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Okay, Jonathan was swearing loyalty to David, but listen, it was at a profound cost to himself because not only was he surrendering his legal right to the throne so that David could be preeminent, but it was much more than that because in antiquity, when one royal house replaced another, it was the common practice for the new royal house to kill all the potential rulers from the old royal house. Right? That was a matter of course. And so by abdicating his future throne to David, Jonathan knew, of course, that one day David and his descendants would rule over Israel. And so Jonathan wants a promise from David that he and his descendants will not kill or mistreat the descendants of Jonathan. By the way, uh, David later honors that agreement. Instead of killing off all the members of the Saulite dynasty, the, the, all the members of Saul's household, David gave Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, great wealth and a place at the royal table in 2 Samuel 9, 7, and 10. In fact, he even spared Mephibosheth's life when there was reasonable question, a suspicion, at least, that he may have participated in a revolt against David in 2 Samuel 19, 25 through 29. So he makes good on the promise. And so it's, it's just quite telling that in spite of all the immediate risk to David's life in this plan that these two are hatching together, I think it's telling that Jonathan is already talking to David about what's going to happen when David assumes the throne. Because in Jonathan's mind, it's a foregone conclusion. And it's not hard to figure out why he was so confident of David's inevitable rise to power. Because he refers to Yahweh, Lord, in all capital letters, six times in just these six verses. Verse 
That's not normal. That is unusual. Six times in six verses, he refers to Yahweh, the one ultimately responsible for David's success. May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of of the enemies of David from the face of the earth and may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies and on and on. Obviously, Jonathan understood that the successful outcome of everything they were planning from the day, from that day and every day after, including David's future as king, it was completely dependent on God. And you realize, right, it's no different for you and me today. It's not just survival from one day to the next that depends on God. Listen, your daily success depends on God. In fact, one sure way that you can waste opportunities for success that God places before you each day is as simple as choosing what you desire for your life today instead of choosing what God desires for your life today when those two things aren't the same. It's the daily decision to choose things like your comfort over your calling. It's choosing your own will over His will. It's these small, incremental decisions that we make every day of our lives that accumulate into a lifetime of wasted opportunities. Just ask Saul. And the irony of that is we think we're getting the most out of this life when we're actively pursuing what we want the most from this life when actually God created you for a life that reaches far beyond any kind of life you could ever create for yourself apart from a daily dependence upon Him. And of course, to achieve success in your life, You have to understand what true success is, right? Because God's definition of success and this world's definition of success are very different. The world's definition of success is depending on yourself to provide for yourself comfort and safety and security through accumulation. God's definition of success is living a life that is utterly dependent upon Him in order to accomplish His will for this world through you. Which means sometimes you have to give up what you want in order to do what God wants if you want to actually succeed in this life. Okay, because there's nothing you can ever buy, right? There's no material pleasure. There's no amount of uh, accumulated wealth or power or position or popularity that will ever help you accomplish God's will in your own life to the degree that living your life totally dependent upon Him from day to day will. In fact, uh, you may not believe this, but it's true. You will get more done for the sake of the gospel in one day, living your life totally dependent upon God, than you will in a year, depending on yourself. It's a fact. It's true. I've experienced it firsthand in my own life. It's a daily process of asking yourself, every time you decide to pursue something, is this something God wants for me? Or is this merely something I want for myself? Because the truth is, listen, in His great grace and patience with us, God will allow you to take things for yourself that He's not offering you. He will. He will allow you to pursue things in your life that in your mind will make your life better or will make you better. When in truth, the only thing that many of our pursuits actually accomplish in our lives is they make us less dependent upon God. Listen, 
the more you do that, the more comfortable with those decisions you become. Until if you're not careful, you will mistake God's grace in your life for his approval of how you're living it. The Apostle Paul said, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Romans 2.4. This is exactly what happened to Saul. And it's exactly what happens to so many Christians today. We chase after things that God never intended for us to have while disregarding the things that he's trying to give us until we end up living our lives devoted to purposes he never created us for. Okay, your success from one day to the next, it's utterly dependent upon God. And yet if you want to experience that success from one day to the next, then you have to learn to utterly depend upon him from one day to the next. Author Francis Chan said, God will ensure my success in accordance with his plan, not mine. Let's finish our story for today. Verses 18 through 23. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand. and Remain beside the stone heap, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger." But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So it's getting real now as Jonathan lays out the final part of the plan for David. When the new moon festival begins, David will hide out at the stone heap. It's also known as the stone ezel. Uh, it, that's how it's described in this Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. And we know from the Targum, the ancient Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, that the stone ezel was, known, uh, was a known landmark at the time. It was this large, distinctive rock outcropping. So there would be no mistake between Jonathan and David about exactly where David needed to be in order for this plan to work. And then based on Saul's reaction to David's absence at the festival, Jonathan would shoot three arrows to the side of the stone as old David's hideout and depending on the directions that Jonathan shouts out to the boy retrieving the arrows David will know whether to stay or to leave it seems like a solid plan although they have no idea what the outcome will be at this point right and yet the uh, the matter as far as Jonathan is concerned is already settled if I say to the boy look the arrows are on this side of you take them then you are to come for as the Lord as Yahweh as our sovereign God lives, it is safe for you. And there's no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord. For Yahweh, our sovereign God, has sent you away. In other words, whatever the next step is, David, whatever the next step for you is, it is the Lord's doing. Which is why Jonathan finishes with this statement, as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord, Yahweh, is between you and me forever. In other words, David, you don't have to worry because no matter what happens next, 
God's got this. He's got you. He's got me. You see, it's not just the big life and death issues that God is concerned with. I mean, yes, he, yes, your survival depends on him. And yes, your success depends on him. Absolutely. But listen, God's sovereignty in your life extends to every single detail in your life. It's not just the big things. It's every single little thing. Your next move depends on God. And if you really want to learn to live your life totally dependent upon him, then this is exactly how you have to view your daily decisions about how and where and with whom you spend your time every single day. Because I'm just telling you, look, one of the single greatest gifts, one of the most valuable, precious gifts that we've been given by God is time. And yet once it's spent, it's spent. Time is one thing you cannot hold on to or get back. Once it's gone, it's gone. So making the most of the time that has been given to you moment by moment is one of the most important pursuits you could ever embark upon in your life. And the way that you make the most of every moment of every day is to learn to depend on God every moment of every day. Not just the big things, not just your survival, not just your big successes or victories, even in the little things. And I'm telling you, look, I know it'll seem strange to you at first, but listen to me. The more you practice dependency on the Spirit of God in your daily life, like moment to moment, the more you will realize just how much God is actually trying to use you in significant, even miraculous ways throughout your day, day after day in your your own life and in the lives of other people. I was, I was in Greenville one day a couple of years ago and I was getting new glasses and so they did the exam and all the stuff and they said it'll be about an hour and you can come back and pick up your glasses and I said okay. So I'm on Haywood Road and across the street was a mall and I hate the mall but I thought well you know I can go over there and, and just wander around aimlessly for an hour and come back and get my glasses. So I got in my truck and I started to pull out of the parking lot and I got to the stop sign and I thought to myself, you know what? Instead of just wasting an hour of my life, maybe I should ask God what he would have me do for that hour. So I was sitting there in my truck. I said, Father, what do you want me to do? I've got an hour and kill some time. What do you want me to do? And I'm telling you, I didn't hear an audible voice. But as sure as I'm talking to you, I knew that I knew that I knew. The Holy Spirit said to me, go over to that furniture store next door. <laughs> and I look over and there's a huge furniture store in a massive parking lot and it's empty. And I didn't look open. I said, Lord, are you sure? And he said, go into that furniture store. So I drove next door and parked, empty parking lot, went inside. Nobody in there but a few employees. And I'm walking around and, and a lady comes up to me and she says, can I help you find something? I said, no, I'm just killing time waiting on my glasses. I've got about an hour to kill. So she, of course, proceeds to follow me around the store, probably hoping to sell me something. And so we're talking. And inevitably, the conversation always comes around to, what do you do for a living? And she asked me that question. I said, well, I'm the pastor of a local church. And she said, really? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, then. I need to talk to you. 
And she began to tell me the story of what had been happening in her life. She and her husband are not involved in church in any way, hadn't been going anywhere, attending anywhere. They were relatively new to the area. She said, my husband had a massive heart attack a couple of weeks ago, and he actually flatlined for some number of minutes. He was, he was sort of like dead, and they brought him back to life on the table. And she said that he, when he was well enough to talk, and, and now she said he's coming home in about a week, but he was in ICU, and when he was well enough to talk, in horror, he described for me what happened to him when during that time that he flatlined. And she said, the only thing we can figure is he was describing hell, but it seemed like he was in a dream state, and it seemed like everything that he saw, what they described to them, seemed like what hell must be like, this horrifying place where, where people were suffering. And so she said, my husband said to me, I know that we're not really church people, but I feel very strongly that we need to find a church and learn about God. And so she said to me, now listen, Pastor Rob, I know we're in Greenville and, and down here in the middle of it, and I work in Greenville and you're here shopping in Greenville, she said, but we don't actually live in Greenville. And I know it's a long shot, but I'm wondering if there's any chance you know about any churches in the town we live in. It's a little town north of here called Traveler's Rest. I said, well, I know about one church in Traveler's Rest. And I told her all about upcountry, and they came. And for a season, they were a part of our church here, and God's moved them on. And I don't know where they are now or what's happening, but the point is, you understand, that was a, that was a divine, sovereign moment that, that I could have just chosen to ignore what God wanted to say or do. That's one remarkable story about one moment in my life where I consciously, intentionally decided to depend upon the Holy Spirit for my next move in the middle of an otherwise unremarkable day. But you know what? I have dozens of those stories. I do. Because that's how God works in your life when you practice dependency on Him. And I mean moment by moment, day by day in your life. Why? Because He's sovereign over every single one of those moments. In His hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Those are the words of a man who had it all. And lost it all. And then ended up with more than he started with. You see, Job understood probably better than anyone. That everything in this life depends on God alone. It's a lesson that David was learning throughout his life. It's a lesson that so many others have had to learn throughout their lifetimes. And it is a lesson that you and I must learn. Because look, no matter what you ever have to face throughout the course of your life, God is as much in control in your calamity as He is in your calm. He's as much in control in your distress as He is in every success. He's as much in control when you have no idea what's going to happen next as He is when everything is falling into place just as you planned it, moment by moment by moment. And the quicker you can accept that, the quicker your perspective will change toward all of the things that you go through, both the good and the bad. Because listen, if God is in control, then you don't have to be. 
And there's nothing in this world more freeing than letting go of all the things you so desperately try to control in this life that you were never meant to control. Instead, simply start living like everything depends on God. Because it does. Let's pray.